You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution? I'll take it. Can you tell I'm trying to grow up instead of yelling like, what's up, Revolution? We changed it up a little bit this week. How are you doing? Five years from now, it'll be a good evening. And the whole church will say good evening. Back. Anyone else grow up Baptist? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's always like the real deep man voice, good evening. Right, anyway, I don't have that. I'm a tenor, uh, so it's kind of odd. Okay. <laughs> so we started a new series last week. Um, we are in the book of Acts for the summer, and the series is called The People of God. And what we, what we decided that we wanted to do, or rather I decided that we wanted to do, is, uh, is we want to take a look at the early church, and we wanted to see how they lived and the things that they did. And in doing that, and looking at how they lived and, and the actions that they took, um, we're really taking a look at how they responded to the gospel. We're, we're honestly looking at how they lived like Christ. Um, and, and last week we talked about this a little bit, that you know, the early church... The first century church, they, they turned the world upside down by the grace of God, right? It wasn't just them and the things that they were doing, but it was the power of God working through them and their words and their deeds that really changed everything. Like there has never been, like there never was a religion like Christianity and there never has been since then, right? You can go to almost anywhere in the world. There are a few unreached regions still uh, in the world, but everyone knows who Jesus is. They might not know the gospel, Right? They might not know exactly who Jesus is, but everyone's heard of Jesus Christ. Right? There's no other religion like that. It is complete madness of what started in the first century church. So we want to emulate, or we want to try to emulate, the early church's godly examples. Right? While at the same time, unvoiding their ungodly examples. Right? I don't want us to idolize and get a bad idea um, that the early church was a perfect church, because no churches are perfect. Um, I actually had a conversation with a guy at the store that I work at this past week, and he was talking about, I don't like to go to church because of, there are so many hypocrites and there are so many problems with the church. And I was like, you should feel right at home, <laughs> right? Um, right? I would hate to go to the perfect church because I would screw it up, right? Like, like the first like two weeks that I was there, like something bad would happen. So we should all really feel right at home that no church is perfect because we're all horrible people. Um, no, too dark? It's true. You should read the Bible. Yeah, we're not good people. Anyway, um, but last week, we took a look at how the church understood Jesus whenever he called them to be witnesses for him. Right? And we talked about that we aren't just supposed to live good, moral lives, doing good for other people. That that is not actually the sole mission of the church. But we are commanded by Christ to be verbal with our words, proclaimers of the gospel. That Jesus Christ is Lord and God and Messiah, and that he was sent to earth to die in our place and, and, and suffer the penalty for sin that we deserve, and that through faith in him we'd be saved. That's what we're supposed to declare to all people that we come into contact with. And I gave you guys a challenge last week uh, to, to talk to someone, at least one believer a week, or one unbeliever a week, rather, about the gospel, um, and try to be intentional with your conversations. And I really hope you took me up on it, because uh, I'm going to start calling names. Tell me your story, Steve. I'm messing with you, man. Like, you know, <laughs> who, who, like, who in here, like, clinched whenever I did that? Like, <laughs> anyway. Um, but if you didn't do that last week, I, I genuinely mean it. Like, I'm praying that you guys will take me up on that challenge if you're a Christian. Right? Because we can't say that Jesus is our Lord and then look at this command that the Lord and King of us gave and then say, I'm not going to do it. 
right? So I've been praying that we would all take that command to be witnesses really seriously. So if you didn't do it last week, or if you did do it last week, it doesn't matter. Go for it again this week. Try to talk to an unbeliever about Christ. Um, But tonight, okay, so all that aside, tonight we're going to take a look at how the early church interacted with one another, right? Um, How do they view one another? How do they treat one another? Um, But before we do that, Right, we got to define our terms. Right, I don't ever want to get too ahead of ourselves. Whenever I say the, the church, how the church interacted with one another, what I mean by that, the church is the people who have come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ. Right, the church is not everyone that comes to the church on a Sunday morning. Right, that is not the church. Right, and this building is not the church. This is a church building. This is where the church meets. Right, so. But let me, let me define that real quick. People who follow Jesus, people who have true saving faith in Christ. There is a true faith, and then there is a false kind of faith, right? Um, a false kind of faith are, the, are the, the ones who would say, yes, I am a Christian. And it's really, they're a Christian in name only. They may come to church on Sundays. They, they know John 3.16. They have that memorized. Um, sing some hymns, know some hymns, and have those memorized. Maybe grew up in church their entire life, but they're... Their lives really, apart from them going to church on a Sunday, show no evidence that they love Christ. Right? It's like that dude who's like sleeping with his girlfriend unrepentantly and still wants to say, I'm a follower of Christ and he is my Lord. Or the person who is unrepentantly greedy and selfish with their time and their money and yet they want to say, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. Right? There's just a couple examples. There are a lot in the Bible. But like that's that false kind of faith that's just... You can say whatever you want with your mouth, but that doesn't mean that your heart's actually been changed and that you actually trust in Christ for your salvation and that you actually love him. Right? Whenever we say the church, we mean people who have true faith in Christ. Jesus says the tree will be known by the fruit that it bears. That these are people who have come to faith in Christ and trust him. And, the, and their, their good deeds and their works and their lives don't save them. It's their faith in Christ that saves them. But their actions reflect a heart that's been changed by the gospel. They love Christ. They desire to kill their sin. They want to be like Jesus. They want to help the poor. They want to tell people the gospel. Right? That, that's the church. Right? So there's the visible church that are all the people who show up and call themselves Christians. And then there's the true church. The people who have actually been changed by the gospel and actually follow Christ. Right? So the church, I'm referring to because I'm going to use that word a lot this evening, uh, at least in the beginning. The church are the people who actually follow Jesus. Again, our good works don't save us, but our good works are evidence of the change that has happened to us because we've been saved, right? And also, I just want to say this. We are, here at Revolution, we are a local congregation of the church, right? Capital C Church. It's a worldwide phenomenon, the church. Um, We just call ourselves Revolution Church, right? But we are a local congregation of the worldwide church. Just wanted to throw that out there. There's a little bit of theology for you. Um, But what we want to look at this evening like I said a minute ago, is we want to look at how the church treated each other, right? How they viewed one another and how they interacted together, right? And, and I really want us to, to think deeply as we look into this, right? Be asking yourself some questions in your heart as you're hearing these things. And I, I want you to be thinking about this because I took a beating on Friday whenever I was, I was writing uh, my notes out. Ask yourself this question, how do I line up with this godly example? How do I line up with this? If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I'm, I'm kind of going to talk to you sporadically, but I'm mainly addressing believers with this stuff. All right, ask yourself this too. Do I view and treat other Christians like the early church treated one another? 
More specifically, actually, and this is really what I want it to come down to, do I view and treat the believers at this local congregation called Revolution Church, do I treat these people like the early church treated one another? Right? Because I'm not preaching to, like, the worldwide church. I'm preaching to the church at Revolution right now. So how do we interact with one another? Do we follow this godly example? And what my hope is is that we will be humbled by the love of God displayed to us in Christ crucified for sinners and that from that we will begin to truly love one another the way that God the Father has loved us in Christ. That's really what we're after this evening. All right, so if you want to, if you're, if you're old school and you want to crack a Bible, it's all good. Um, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, or it's going to be up on the projector behind me. Also, if you're new, uh, there are blue Bibles in the backs of those pews. Uh, it's the New Living Translation. It's super easy to read. Not a lot of these and nows. Take that home with you. That's our gift. Um, our gift to you. You're not stealing. But Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. That's our, that's our jump-off text this evening. And the, the, the gospel writer Luke says this. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Let's take a minute and pray real quick. Father, I, I can do nothing. We can do nothing to change ourselves. I can't argue well enough to change hearts. No preacher is good enough to do that. Father, please melt our hearts from the declaration of what your word says and the example of your son and your love shown to us in the scriptures. Father, do something to us that we cannot humanly do ourselves. God, bring someone who's not a believer here, bring them to faith in Christ. Let them know their needy state and that they need a savior or they'll suffer your wrath, God, and break the hearts of believers here that we would desire you and we would desire to treat one another like family. Holy Spirit, work through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, so what we just read from Acts chapter 2, what we just read um, is one of a few times that Luke does something like this uh, in the book of Acts, is, is he'll write these short summaries of what the early church did. Right? He'll do, it's, it's a few times, I think three or four different times in the book of Acts he'll do this. And this is the first one. Um, so let's just take a look just real quick um, at what are some of the characteristics of the church. Um, we see right off the rip, it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Right? So they were hungry for the word. They wanted to know what did Jesus teach um, what is the Holy Spirit revealing to these apostles? They wanted to know, they devoted themselves to it, that they were in fellowship with one another, that they, they were part of one common goal, and they, and they, they were unified. Um, they were devoting themselves to prayer, both for one another, for themselves individually, for the kingdom of God in general. They were worshiping together. Um, they devoted themselves to evangelism, right? Because at the end it says the Lord added to their numbers. So they're going out and they're telling people this good news that Jesus is Lord and he's been crucified in our place. And that we need to repent or suffer the wrath of God whenever we die. Um, we see as we read on that, that they were generous, 
They really cared for each other, so much so that they were willing to sell their homes. Actually, like that, that, that Greek there, um, the original Greek wording uh, tells us that they were probably selling their homes. Not all of them, but some of them. So they were willing to give up their possessions in order to help other believers. Um, and this says that they shared their meals with generosity and joy in their hearts. Right? So they found joy towards one another. Right? They rejoiced at what God was doing in the lives of these people and that God had saved these people. And they really loved each other and they just wanted to hang out with each other all the time. Um, I read a commentary that said it would, be, it would have been rare to see one Christian without another one very close behind them at this time. Right? So they're always together. And then we see that the Lord kept adding to their numbers. They just kept growing and increasing. Um, now that we can see from that that the church was living in harmony with each other. Right? Um, this is, this is how the church operated in its infancy. Um, some scholars will tell you that this is the purest form of the church ever. Right? That this is the most innocent that the church ever got. And I'm not saying that the church has ever been prevailed against by Satan. But like, if you read the book of Acts, it starts out really good. And you're like, oh man, this is like a utopian society. This is like, it can't be true. And it was almost too good to be true. And then things like quickly kind of spiraled down, right? Um, well, not, not super quickly. I, I'm, I'm maybe giving you the wrong impression. Things got rough as the church went on. And we can see now there's, there's things wrong with the church today. Um, but at least at this time with the church, they were innocent, right? There was no false teachers among them at the, at the very first stages of the church. There were no false teachers. There was no discord in the community, right? People weren't being like... Uh, gossiping and backbiting one another. There were no elitist groups that thought that they were more saved than other Christians or better than them. That hadn't crept up yet in the church. Um, There was peace amongst God's people, right? Again, an innocent church, they were just loving God, right? Obeying Christ as Lord, walking in His commandments as best they could. And they were loving people, right? The people outside of their community, um, or their community of believers. They're telling them the gospel, Right, which is the greatest way that we can love the people around us that don't know Christ, is to tell them this message of salvation. And then here, what we just read, they were loving each other. Right? So they loved God, loved outsiders, and they loved one another too. Right? But here's my question. Why do these people begin to live this way? Right? Like, that's not normal. <laughs> right? Because we're sinners, and we don't generally, we're not that generous. Like, I, never, I don't wake up and think, I'm going to sell my house and give the money to someone today. Like, I don't do that. But that these guys were doing that kind of stuff, right? So something monumental must have happened to transform them. And some of you probably see where I'm going with this already because you've heard me preach a lot. They believed the gospel, right? That's really, like, the moment that they believed, something began to change in their hearts. Um, and we, if we would have read the whole chapter too, these, this, this early church... Uh, the majority of the people who, who made up the church had just heard Peter preach the first gospel sermon ever, which is really cool. So take some time this week, read Acts chapter 2, and read the whole sermon by, that, that Peter preached, the first gospel sermon ever, right? But just some highlights. We see Peter in chapter 2. He stands before this huge crowd of thousands of people, right? And he's in Jerusalem. They're all Jews at the time. Um, the gospel hadn't went out to the Gentiles yet. Uh, but he's standing before this huge crowd, and he declared that they were all sinners. Straight up. Like, you are all sinners. You are guilty of rejecting Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And then he goes on to say, it was clear that Jesus was sent by God. Right? It was evident in his ministry. It was evident in the way that Jesus taught. It was evident in the things that he said. It was evident in his miracles. Right? So it was clear cut 
that Jesus was sent by God, that he was the Messiah, and yet they still rejected him, right? And he gives them an indictment. You are guilty for rejecting Christ, even though you clearly could see that he was sent from God the Father. And then he says that they were held responsible for their rejection of Jesus. And he says, God will crush you for this. He said, of Jesus, God the Father said, I will humble your enemies and make them a footstool under your feet. That means I will crush them for you. Right? So he he tells them the penalty for their sin. You will be ultimately and supremely humbled by God the Father in the next life. And then the people, they begin to realize, we're guilty, we're sinners, we deserve the wrath of God on us. And they actually cried out to Peter, brother, what shall we do? And then Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, Repent, which implies you will believe as well, and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Right? Which is like taking on the name of Christ. You affiliate yourself with Christ. And then you will receive forgiveness. And that's what they did. 3,000 of them in one sermon. I want to preach that sermon someday, just throwing that out there to you, right? Like, we don't know exactly every single syllable that Peter said, but that was a very short sermon. Like, I wish I could preach for 35 seconds and then 3,000 people got saved, Um, right? That's a a work of God, right? But that's what they did. 3,000 people repented that day. And that's what we did, too, really. We heard that same message that we're all guilty of sinner, or of being sinners, right? We've rebelled against God. We won't obey Him. We want to do what we want to do at all times, which is really us saying that we are our own gods. And then someone told us, repent and believe. Repent and trust Christ. Trust that Christ was perfectly righteous for you and that you can't make yourself right with God. Trust that Jesus suffered the penalty that you deserve for your sin. Just trust and believe and you will receive the forgiveness of God. You will receive this unmerited favor from God. And now go follow Him. Affiliate yourself with Christ. Trust in Him. Follow Him. In that message that we received, if you're a Christian, in that message, God shows grace to the undeserving sinner. I don't think that we're... We're we're not humbled by that enough. The fact that I I can say that and not feel like all the time, not feel like something bubble up inside me and want to explode, that God shows mercy and forgiveness and grace to people who don't deserve it. The fact that we can hear that and, and just say, yeah, that's true, and it not blow our minds every time. I, I don't know what's wrong with us. But that fact is what radically transforms us from the inside out. Right? When, we heard the, when we heard that message proclaimed, the, the Bible says that God caused us to be born again. Right? Which means that we're just born again to new desires. That we start this new life, right? And these new desires that we're born again to, these are new desires for Christ. This is about as simply as I can put it. That we now desire Jesus to be our Lord and our Master and our Savior and our God. And we desire to worship Him. We begin to find Him supreme to all things. And we desire to be like Him. That's the true heart change that comes uh, because of the love that Christ has shown us in taking our punishment. That's because gratitude to Christ for this is what really causes change. Right? Like, we can change all these external things. Like, yeah, I'll go to church. Yeah, like, I might stop watching porn or I might stop getting drunk all the time. But, like, that's not real heart change. Those can be external things. Unbelievers can stop doing those things. But this true gratitude makes us want to be like Christ in every respect that we possibly can, makes us desire to worship Him with our lives. 
So I said that just to, I just want to point this out real quick. If we have no change in our desires, if we have no real desire for Christ and no desire to be like Christ, then you have not been born again. And you're still in your sins. You've not been transformed. You haven't repented. You haven't believed. I just wanted to line that out real quick because I think that's something that we all need to check ourselves on a regular basis with. You know, the Bible says, make sure of your calling all the time. Make sure that you're a Christian. We're supposed to be doing inventory all the time. But the church began to live the way that we read in Acts chapter 2 because of the gospel. Right? Because they had been born again. That's why they began to live this way. So I said that because it's the gospel that transforms. But I want to focus on one thing that they did. They loved each other. Right? This is kind of where we're landing. We're going to go a couple other places. But they really, really loved each other. They were a family. Right? Not like a family. I want, to, I want to make that real clear. They weren't like a family. They actually were a family. Right? Let's, let's get real specific. What are some of the things that we saw them do just in that vein of them acting, not acting again. I'm sorry. See, we say that they were like a family. I want to drive home the point that they actually were one and they actually viewed themselves like one. Um, what were some things, some evidence of that, rather? Well, we start out in verse 42. I'm not going to read it again, but we're just going to highlight some things. It said they devoted themselves to fellowship, right? Which is participation together. That they had one goal, they were of one mind, they were united in one cause. And that was the proclamation of Christ crucified for sinners and being like him, right? Those are like, you can't divorce those two goals. They want to be like Christ and they shared everything, right? That's fellowship. Also in verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves to, uh, the ESV says, the breaking of bread. Right? This is the Lord's Supper. Right? And what that means, it's, it's communion. Right? It's that thing we do once a month where we eat some crackers and juice. And God bless Alex Scott for making good bread because you don't want to taste the other crackers that we have in the basement. They're horrible. Anyway, um, but like the Lord's Supper, really what I'm drawing from that, amongst other things that the Lord's Supper alludes to, is they worship together. Right? Like we do here. They celebrated Christ's work of atonement together. All the time. They were, they were talking about this all the time. Can you believe what he did for us? Yeah, let's meditate on this together. Let's talk about this wonderful truth of Christ broken and bled for us so that we could be made right with God. In verses 44 and 45, we see that they sold their possessions. That is the weirdest one for us in America. They would sell their stuff. We love our stuff in America, but they were willing to sell. Some of them sold their homes in order to help the poor believers among them, right? And I just want to make this real quick. This is not communism, all right? Because I, when I was an early Christian, like when I first converted, I thought, oh, the early church was communist. And I was super liberal at the time, and I was a self-avowed communist. Yeah, Republicans in the room just start shaming me, bring it on. Anyway, not funny? Okay, whatever. Too, too, too political? Anyway, um, this is not communism, right? The apostles did not mandate this from all believers to sell their homes and stuff like that. These people were just doing this out of generosity for one another. They seriously, they just loved each other that much. Like, oh, a couple of us have a car. Well, I really don't need mine then. Uh, I guess you, you need this money more than me so that you can eat, right? Like, they actually loved each other that much, right? So they were generous towards one another. Verse 46 says that they, they met in homes, they met in each other's homes, which tells me they were actually friends. Right? Think about who we invite into our homes. We invite our friends into our homes. And if we invite our enemies into our homes, it's because we, we want them to be our friends. They, they wanted to be around each other. Right? 
Also in verse 46, it said they shared their meals with joy. So they took pleasure in being with one another. They took pleasure in serving one another. Right? They actually wanted to hang out together. It's weird, isn't it? They actually wanted to be with one another and share their lives with each other. Now, I'll pose this to you. This kind of radical family love did not happen naturally. Right? That's why we talked about being born again. Right? This was the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work in them. Right? And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit transforms us by changing the way that we think. Right? Romans, 12, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. A lot of people know it says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what the Spirit does to us. Is we hear biblical preaching, we read Scripture, and the Holy Spirit begins to change how we think. Right? And that idea that the Holy Spirit changes how we think through the Word of God really fits into the very first thing that Acts chapter 2, that passage that we read, the first thing that it mentioned that the church began to do. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right? And I just want to throw this out there real quick. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let's think about that word devoted. I am devoted to my wife. Right? Like singularly. Like no one will come between. Like I love my mother. She's the only other woman in the room that I love, even on some kind of level, with my wife, just in a different way, of course. And my sister, she's flagging me down. I love my sister. But no one will be, well, nobody, and Brandon. <laughs> but, but hear me, no one will come between me and my wife. Nobody. I am devoted to my wife. They were devoted to the teachings of the apostles. They were zealous and passionate for the teachings of the apostles. Nothing was going to separate them from this. They were going to obey these things. They were taking these things to heart. They weren't just hearing them and saying, yeah, that's true. They were actually taking it deep down into their heart, and they were being transformed by it. I want us to know that, and I want us to start listening to sermons and reading our Bibles differently and be devoted to them. Be devoted to the Word of God. All right, but what did the apostles teach? Well, the apostles' teaching is primarily the gospel, right? This message of Christ crucified for sinners, um, and everything else that they taught is derived from the gospel, right? So just throwing that out there, always be looking in your Bibles whenever you're reading something. How does this point to the gospel? Because everything derives from the gospel. Everything that they taught. This is, the gospel is not something that we believe in the beginning, and then we leave that in the dust, and we start to learn other things. It's like the wellspring of our faith, and it is completely inexhaustible, and we ought to dwell on it all the time. But then here's the real question, right? So I, I, did, I spent a lot of time setting this up. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So what facet of the gospel inspired them and will likewise inspire us to love each other like a family? What facet of the gospel will do that to us? I'm glad you asked, right? There are many, I'm sure. There are a lot of different ways that we could take this. But what kept coming to my mind this week, right? It hit me on Monday, and I tried to, like, shelve it and see, well, what other things can I get? And, and there are many different reasons that they would love each other this way. But the one thing that would not leave me alone this past week was the concept of spiritual adoption. Right? And some of you, this is going to be new for you. This is seriously one of the most beautiful truths you're ever going to hear in your life. Right, and, but to do that, we've got to read a fairly big swath of Scripture. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And just a little fun fact for you. This whole thing we're getting ready to read is one sentence in Greek. Crazy. Paul was a wordsmith. Anyway, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. 
Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us, pay attention to that, and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify Him. That is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. That is one of the most beautifully written things I've ever. This is a personal favorite of mine. Know this. And every Christian, Lord, help us to remember this. And if you're an unbeliever, this is you right now. As good as that is, and as beautiful as that is, we were far from God. We were as far from God as we could possibly get from the moment that we were born. We did not want Him. And we did not find Him beautiful, and we did not worship Him. We worshiped anything but Him. Namely, our own desires. We wanted to do what we wanted to do. We worshipped sex, and we we worshipped some of us partying, some of us, our own greed, whatever. We worshipped anything but Him. Everything else ran our lives. Our own desires ran our lives. And God looked into time before He made the foundation, before He laid the foundation of the earth, and He saw all of this. He saw all of our sin. He saw all of our rebellion against Him. He saw our spiritual slavery to sin. And it's not like we were slaves and we wanted freed. We loved our slavery. The Bible says the light came into the world and the light or and the darkness ran from it because we loved darkness. We loved our slavery. We were children of Satan, according to the scriptures. Right? People think we're all children of God. No, we're not. Ephesians chapter 2, we didn't read it. It says, we were born children of God's wrath. We were sinners both by birth, because we were born sinners, uh, with an inclination away from God. And then later, whenever we grew up, we weren't just sinners by birth anymore. We became sinners by choice because we love sin. We love rebelling against God. We hate Him. The Bible says we are hostile against Him from birth. I say all this to make this point. There is nothing in us to make Him love us. Even to this day as a Christian, there is nothing in you but Christ in you that makes Him love you. Nothing. 
There was nothing in us to make him love us. We have nothing to add to him whatsoever. He does not need us. We're rebels. We're sinners. That is repugnant to God's holiness. It disgusts him. And knowing all of that, God looks into time and he sees what we are and what we will be apart from him. And knowing all of that, all of our sin, all of our rebellion, before God even made the world, he chose you. If you're a Christian, I'm talking to you. If you're not a Christian, I can tell you this. I know that if you come to faith in Christ, then I can say this about you too. He chose you. You. He chose you, according to Paul, for adoption through the blood of Christ. Through Christ's atoning work on the cross. He looked at you and knowing all of your sin and all of your rebellion and all of your, thought, all of your faults and your sinful thoughts and everything. And he said, mine. This one is mine. I will have them. And there was nothing in us to make him want to do that. This is like me if I went to a third world country and went to an orphanage and these children are poor and they're sick. Some of them are dying. Some of them are disfigured. There's nothing in them that they're going to add to my life. In fact, they're going to make my life much harder. There's nothing in them to make me find them beautiful. And yet I would walk and say, that one, this one comes home with me today. And when all this is said and done, he will be my son. He will be a dowdy by the time this whole thing is said and over with. Because I want him and I love him. Why? Because I do. Because I want him and I love him. We can say this confidently if you're a Christian. God did this for me. I can say that. He chose me. He showed grace to me. He gave me mercy. He adopted me. He loved me. He united me to Christ. He revealed His plan to me. He made me His heir. He freed me from sin. He put His Holy Spirit in me. And it gave Him great pleasure to do so. Through nothing of my own. It just gave Him pleasure. Don't ever let anyone take that from you if you're a Christian. Don't ever let any strand of theology or any preacher ever take that from you or try to convince you of something otherwise. God chose you. Adopted children did not choose their parents. God chose you. God called you by name before you were born and said, I will have you and it gives me great pleasure to do so. First we realize this personally. I was adopted. Me. God did this through Jesus on my behalf for me. All right, we have to realize this personally, but then we take a step back and look at this passage again. And I wanted to read it again. For the sake of time, we're not going to do that. We take a step back and we look at this passage again and we realize it wasn't just for me. Like adoption is way bigger and way broader than me as an individual. It's way bigger than us as individuals. There is a ridiculous amount of inclusive language in that passage that we read. In our translation that we read, the words we, us, and our are used 19 times in 12 verses. I think Paul's trying to get our attention on something. Just call me crazy. That means that God the Father did all of these things for everyone who would ever come to faith in Christ. 
And it gave him great pleasure to do this for you and for me and for them. Them being everyone else who becomes a Christian. So there's an us there. He did this not just for me, but for us. So then here's the question. Knowing that and owning this adoption. If the Father loves me and all other believers this way, and he finds pleasure in loving them, then why wouldn't I? That's the real question. Why wouldn't I love them this way? To continue that argument, if I'm an heir, right? If I'm an heir of God, right? I'm going to receive an inheritance from God, and I am a son of God or a daughter of God, if you're a lady. Uh, If I'm an heir and a son of the Father, wouldn't I share the same interests and loves as he does? Right? Think about like kids. Kids love to emulate their parents. Right? Whether their parents are good or bad parents, kids will end up like their parents. They're influenced by them. They think that their dads and moms are the coolest. How much more for our Heavenly Father? If we've been adopted, wouldn't we share the same interests as He does? Wouldn't he, we love the same people that He does? So our lives, keeping that in mind, should really declare to other believers, I will help you. I will will give you my money if you need it. I'm here to help. I'm here to be generous. I'll give you myself emotionally. Um, I'll give you myself in a true, genuine friendship because I care about you. I'll give you my time and assist you physically. I'll teach you whatever I know and understand about Scripture. I'll give you biblical counsel as much as I know how. I will do anything that I can for you. And why? Because I share the same interests as our Father. And he loves you. So I love you. That really should be our thinking. Think about this. Jesus, right, because Christ is always the center of everything. Jesus, the eternal son and true heir to all of God's promises, came into the world to save, love, and care for the ones whom his father loves. John chapter 17 says this. This is Jesus praying, I might add, before he's crucified. I have revealed you, talking, praying to the Father, I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. Skipping down to verse 19, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Notice in that, the ones given by the Father for Jesus to save. Right? That's who Jesus came for. He came to love those ones that the Father gave to him, that the Father had chosen to adopt. That's who Christ came into the world to redeem, because he loves who the Father loves. Right? Romans 8.29 says that, that we were saved not only from hell and the wrath of God, but we were saved to become like Jesus, the eternal Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Right? This, this means that loving God right, and loving God's people is going to be a huge facet of that. Right? So keeping that in mind, if we're going to be like Christ, and loving God's people is going to be a, a huge facet of being like Christ. It's really no surprise that the Apostle John would say things like this. We're going to read a couple more passages. John, 1 John chapter 3. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. 
That means they're not a Christian. It means they've not been born again. They're still spiritually dead. Verse 16. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. And then 1 John chapter 4. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Right? Again, note in those passages, this is all actively loving each other. Right? A lot of times I say, well, I don't hate them. Right? But are we actively pursuing what's best for these people? Are we actually being generous? Are we actually befriending these people? Right? Active love is what these passages are calling for. If we don't actively love our brothers and sisters, then we have no proof that we've passed from death to life. That's one of the ways we can have assurance that we've been born again and that we're saved is that we love other believers. Right? Anything less than true love for other Christians is inconsistent with our having become sons of God. So then I think this question we need to ask is, so why don't we consistently love other believers as deeply as we should? Why not? And Rev's gotten a lot better at this. This is just something that we can all say, we don't consistently do this like we ought to. We're selfish. But I, I think it's one of two reasons that we don't consistently love other believers this way. I think for a lot of us, the truth of this family adoption, that it wasn't just for me, but God took pleasure in saving all these people, hasn't really set in. That God finds pleasure in them too, so I ought to find pleasure in them as well. I don't think that that's set in for a lot of us. I think the other, the other one is this, that you're not actually in the family yourself. So this is completely foreign. Again, what we read is, is this is proof that we have passed from death to life, is that we love other Christians. So I think either this truth hasn't really hit us like it should, or we're not actually in the family. It's the only options I think the Bible gives us. So I want us to check our hearts on this, and I want us to dwell on it. Right? Just think about it this way, too. If we have one Father, one Lord and Redeemer, Jesus, and one Holy Spirit dwelling in all of us, and we have one goal, to be like Christ, then how can we have this in common, right, and not see that we are actually a family? We have to be blind to not see that we are actually a family, that we're not like one, but we have one Father, this is, this is huge for us to keep in mind. Like, we have so much in common on such a deep level. Like, how could we not want to be in fellowship with one another, right? People become best friends because they like the same band or, like, they like the same kind of beer. And they, like, become, like, bros about the whole thing. Like, how much more for us who share this in common? We share the same Heavenly Father. How much more should we want to be in fellowship with one another? And I'll pose this to you too, and this thought hit me square in the face. It is an offense against the cross of Christ for us not to love the very ones that Christ has redeemed. For us to not actively pursue the ones that Christ has redeemed is for us to spit on the cross and say, I don't think you actually love them that much. 
So in Acts 2, we see the early church loved one another deeply. So if we're going to be the people of God, we must love the people of God. Again, consistency is what we're after. And love always works itself into expression. The early church helped each other, and they met together, and they cared, and they shared their stuff, and they fellowshiped with each other, and they found joy in one another, just being in the presence of each other and rejoicing in what God's doing in each other's lives and seeing the transformation take place from a spiritually dead person to become like Christ. Keeping that in mind, I I would implore you all, myself included, make time for each other. Make time for one another. If you see a believer here at Revolution in need, give your money to them. And I'm not saying to do this foolishly. And I'm not saying to give yourself into a place where you now become the one that needs help because that's not biblically sound either. Help people. Meet together throughout the week, right? Not just the small groups. Hang out with each other, right? We should want to be in fellowship with one another. We should want to break bread in our homes together like Acts 2 says. Be there emotionally for each other. Right? Don't make it like a high five on Sunday. How you doing? Oh, I'm good. Because everyone always says they're good. Very few people actually mean it. Be their friend. Get down in the dirt with them. Be there for them as they hurt. And rejoice with them when they rejoice. Know your family. Right? And earnestly pray for one another. Don't just give them the, the Christian, I'll pray for you, which is code for like, please get out of my face. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Right? Actually pray for each other. Go to God the Father on their behalf because... They're your brother or sister, and you love them. And Christ prayed for us. Right? John 17, I pray not for the world, but I pray for the ones that you've given me. If you're a Christian, he was like you were given to Christ by the Father. He was praying for you. Pray for them. Emulate Christ. So basically, get out of your comfort zone and make a new friend, because I know not everyone in this church is small as we are. Not, we don't know everyone. Right? So meet your family and find pleasure in them. Just like our Father finds pleasure in all of us, His adopted children. But one final thing. In verse 47, it said, Jesus, says the Lord, which is a reference to Jesus, said, the Lord added to their number. Right? It's a beautiful truth. Jesus added to the family. And He continues to do so. Right? Jesus sends forth his Holy Spirit to bring people to salvation by faith in Jesus. And God continues to adopt people to this day. So I said that to say this. If you're here and you don't truly believe the gospel, you're not following Jesus, you may say you're a Christian with your mouth, but your life has no evidence. You have, there's been no change The scriptures, God himself is inviting you into forgiveness. He's inviting you into grace. He's inviting you into knowing him through Christ. So I would implore you, repent and believe. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ and trust in him and join this family with us. Come and know the love of God shown to you in Jesus. And believers, let's go and be the family that we actually are. And let's truly live as the people of God. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us beyond what we could possibly ever deserve. We were far from you and Jesus brought us near to you because you chose to adopt us. What a beautiful truth that is, God. Father, would you not draw another one to your son? 
would you not save another one? You add to the church, would you not add one to your church this evening? Father, increase your family. God, help us to actually live like the family that we are. Help us to be compassionate and kind to one another. Do a work in us that we cannot do for ourselves. Father, we thank you for being our Father. And we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.